This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. But I must be prepared any time to I do too. I know. It's like a warm blanket, right? Uh, Minute by minute, of course, uh, referring to the latest batch of Fed minutes that we just got moments ago. Uh, Their last meeting, of course, held on May 1st. So let's get into it, some of the headlines, and see what our next guest has to say about it. Jerry Paul, he is Senior VP of Fixed Income over at uh, Icon Advisors, based in Colorado, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. By the way, his Icon uh, Flexible Bond Fund beating just about all of its peers over the past five years, returning on average about three, a little bit more than 3% uh, annually. Uh, Nice to have you here in our New York studio. Welcome. Thanks, Carol. It's good to be here with you and Jason. So tell me a little bit about um, how you read these Fed minutes. I don't feel like we got um, much of a surprise in terms of what the Fed has to Patience. say. Patience. Patience. They're going to be patient. Patient for longer, I guess, may be one of the things <laughs> yes. that that may have jumped out at us. Were, were you surprised to hear that language? I, I think that uh, following the Fed this year is going to be a very boring, uh, <laughs> tedious process. Do I, you really? Because markets like boring sometimes. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be boring, and I think that uh, you know people shouldn't be surprised that you know each time they come out, it's going to be something like this, uh, fairly innocuous. You know, you're going to have well, maybe we you know maybe we should lower, but maybe not yet. Maybe we should go higher, but maybe not yet. I think it's just going to be back and forth on that. So, I, how much attention do you pay to stuff like which which of because the Fed's members speak a lot (laughs) we have a lot more meeting or we have meetings but we have a lot more press conferences right so there's even more transparency than before so what is it that you really pay attention to when it comes to kind of the fed world not a lot carol Uh, (laughs) my my colleagues my colleagues know that uh, i think there's a lot of time misspent on it uh we tend to follow more of a value-oriented uh bond picking approach uh, where we're finding situations that we think inherently have a discount that we can exploit mm-hmm. irrespective of interest rates. Uh, this year is a good example where uh, my duration on my bond portfolio is in the twos, and yet my total return is higher than the Morningstar Intermediate category that has a five and a half Plus but that's duration. what you feel comfortable with. It's just shorter duration in shorter this environment. Shorter duration, yeah. and but again, we've been able to capture enough alpha yeah, that's that we're outperforming that longer duration in a bull market where they should be beating me. So it's it's bond picking that we focus on. You pay peripheral attention to the Fed because you're a you know you're a bond manager, right? But uh, I I joke a little bit. You know, it was only. Uh, nine months, eight, nine months ago, everybody was calling for two to four bumps this year. I know. Now, what a how much money right? did they make with that forecast? Right. You know, we weren't spending our time on that. We were spending our time on selecting bonds that we thought, again, had an inherent value irrespective of uh, interest rates. A, a good example is uh, back in March, uh, we bought the bonds of Tech Resources. 
It was a 5B bond at the time, mm-hmm. uh, trading at 277 basis points wide uh, to the comp. And they got an upgrade a couple weeks after we bought them. So it became an investment-grade bond. Five weeks of holding the bond, and it was up five points. Do you right? still hold it? No. You're I done. We, sold, we, we took our money yeah. and, and ran. But I, I give that as an example of finding you know, different bonds that have opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, again, I think with what we see today from the Fed, we will continue to see more of that, and that there's not really going to be a good way to make much money off of that. And so as you look across the corporate landscape, are there trends that you see in terms of sectors? Are there trends that you know feel a little better at this moment, especially at this moment where there's a little geopolitical volatility, setting aside uh, the Fed for a second? Where do you feel the most comfortable corporate? Uh, Jason, we have been very focused the last several years on high coupon, yield-to-call type of bonds. And what we're trying to do is find situations where they might run past that call date for Mm -hmm. different reasons, the seasonal factor. If it's callable uh, in January, you've got the whole holiday season of December that will slow them down on refinancing. They get engaged in a merger. We we have bonds of uh, Andiver Logistics that got acquired last summer by uh, Marathon, and it sort of held up what should have been a bond that got called last year, didn't get called because of all this turmoil associated with that. And you get to clip those high coupons for a little bit longer. So uh, in terms of the economic environment, the market environment, how does it feel? What kind of visibility do you feel like we have? Because, right, that plays certainly into, you know, your comfort with how corporations are going to do, how they're going to manage their debt. And you are playing, what, mostly in a smaller cap, market cap universe. A a lot of that. Again, uh, Carol, what I tell people is that while I'm a very smart guy, so are all the people that I compete against. And I need to find right. and play in space where they can't. I, I have a presentation that I do. I was doing that Friday in Arkansas. And uh, I always stop on slide seven, Carol, because slide seven has a picture of three young boys looking over the top of the fence. And I always assign a name of one of my many uh, competent competitors to those boys and say, they're looking over at the field where I get to play that they can't. And smaller cap situations is a perfect example of exploiting that kind of opportunity. And what the Fed does doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. Right. It's all about beating the market or beating your competitors or (laughs) whatever you have to do. Can I just say, I just saw a version of Car Karaoke uh, with Mr. James Corden, who does it on CBS. And he did it with Paul McCartney, Sir Paul McCartney. What a blast. Wow. Yeah, really cool stuff. Mr. James Corden. Sir Paul McCartney. <laughs> I like it. It's very formal here today on Bloomberg Radio. I like it. Yeah, I not like so formal. It. Or I don't know how I make a segue here, but we're just going to talk retail. Let's make With Ms. Sarah Halzak. Yes, indeed. She's retail columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. She's on the phone from Washington, D.C. Bureau. Hey, Sarah, nice to have you here. I was thinking tale of two retailers because we've got a lot of earnings from uh, retail, the U.S. retail sector coming out this week. Shares of Target, as Charlie Pellet just mentioned, soaring. Shares of Lowe's, mm, not so much. In fact, they're down about 12%. What's going on here? 
Yeah, so Target had a really strong quarter. Uh, comparable sales were up 4.8%, and a lot of that was driven by e-commerce. Their e-commerce growth surged 42% wow. this quarter. Yeah, a really blockbuster number from them on that front. And the important thing is they're doing a lot of that e-commerce fulfillment now from their stores. 80% of their online orders are fulfilled and shipped from stores. And so it sort of shows that they're successfully making this transition of being what we call an omni-channel retailer, where they're a true hybrid of physical and digital, and they're figuring out how to leverage this massive portfolio of stores and put that towards their digital firepower. Well, and one of the things that I feel like they've done, Sarah, and, and keep me honest here, is they've made some smart deals with other brands, you know, whether it's some of the more digitally native brands, found them some, you know, nice shelf space, some end caps, uh, as they say. They've had these uh, partnerships. So they're continuing to attract maybe an audience that wouldn't necessarily go to a target or at least keep the folks that they have. That's exactly right. And I think Harry's Razors is a great example of what you just described of bringing in a digitally native brand and and being an early partner for them in the physical retail space. I think another thing Target has been uh, top notch at relative to its competitors is bolstering its own private label brands. So uh, apparel and home goods are really important categories for Target. They're high margin categories. They're a place where they're really differentiated. And they've rolled out a ton of new brands that you just can't get anywhere else but Target. And when we see the weak results that we saw yesterday at Kohl's and JCPenney, I can tell you where those sales disappeared to. They disappeared to Target. Well, and what's interesting is I think the home space is an important one for Target. And I think about Fixer Upper, Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? Uh, you know, they have that product line. Why did line. you Oprah that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I Oprah that. Um, anyway, uh, you know, but it's, I think it's a very smart area because you think about TJ Maxx and how well they seem to do when it comes to home goods and that market. And when you think about people, where they are spending money, a lot of it is on their homes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, they, they smell blood in the water because there are a lot of legacy competitors in this space who aren't thriving right now. Bed Bath & Beyond is in real trouble, struggling to deliver uh, positive It's because you get lost growth. once you're in the store. You feel like a hostage once you get caught in. you got to work your way through the aisles. I'm just saying. It's a sea of floor-to-ceiling <laughs> clutter, right? It's, it's a, a retail experience in Bed Bath & Beyond that just feels like it's a time machine to 1998. It's not good. Um, and Pier 1, same thing. That's basically a penny stock at this point, a company that's really struggling. I will say one last thing on Target that really caught the attention of people at my house, at least, and this will tell you something about my teenage boys, the Vineyard Vines deal, amazing. Right. Yes. Yeah. They've had this really strong track record of developing these uh, partnerships with designers and brands, um, and they often sell out. I think that was the case with the Vineyard Vines one recently. Uh, the Lily Pulitzer one they had not too long ago was also uh, a huge success. And so they, they do these um, sort of event-driven designer programs that get people to the store, get people excited I, about their apparel offering, and I, make them feel like they're getting something exclusive. I got to say, Sarah, I have lined up or like known when a new, like a new line is coming out like on a Sunday morning and said, okay, the store's opening, you know, at whatever time, 8 a.m. I know, I know, wow. Jason Kelly. I know, but because the whole new side of you, Carol. No, Master. but if you think <laughs> about the core of Target, right? This is, they were the first ones to go out with like Isaac, Isaac Mizrahi. You know, like think about yeah. these big designer names, make them more accessible to the masses, and it made them very popular. It did. It was a huge part of their strategy and how they made their name in apparel and how they got that uh, Target nickname, right? Yes. They were a place that you could go uh, for stuff that felt okay. chic and upscale but didn't have a chic upscale price point. Okay, wah, 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 30 seconds, lows, not so good. 
Just in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the big thing was they really messed up managing their costs. Essentially, what Marvin Ellison said was that they were accepting cost increases from their vendors and not passing them on to consumers. This is Retail 101. Um, This is a a failure of their systems, processes, and technology, and they're going to need to fix that uh, to turn the business around. all try to assess the back and forth between the U.S. and China, there is definitely a lot of posturing going on, and we're trying to figure out what that all means. We need to remember, though, the impact of it all, especially when it comes to the global supply chain, uh, already making some changes on companies, something we talked about with uh, Cisco CEO uh, just uh, before. This story will be featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's out later this week. It's already on the Bloomberg, and it's at Bloomberg.com. Here with us, Jillian Goodman. She is politics editor at Business Week. She She's out in our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Joel Weber in the house in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He is, of course, Business Week editor. Timely, timely story, Mr. Weber. Uh, we just we just knock him out. Knock him out all day long. All <laughs> Done week, your job. Every week. Check. Yeah, totally. All day, every uh, day. <laughs> no, but, it, but it, I think it is, right? We're trying to figure out this U.S.-China back and forth and what's the impact ultimately on companies and right. what it means well, for it, the supply chain. It was sort of like everything went cold for a while and everyone forgot about it. And then it <laughs> flared back up again. And then suddenly, like, Huawei comes back into the headlines and you just kind of can't keep it out of the headlines once it's in there especially with the Trump administration and that's sort of really I think the point of our story which Jillian edited and so Jillian uh, come on in here how do you tackle a, a story like this because there are some very Bloombergy elements in terms of measuring it but you're also trying to measure rhetoric and politics and for better or worse, that falls to you. So how do you do it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, as with everything in, in, regarding the Trump administration, I mean, there are so many unknowns, chief of which is what is the actual strategy as far as this blacklisting goes? Because as we saw with ZTE, you know, three months later, that position was reversed. And so, you know, Huawei, uh, we ran a story, I think, late last week about them stockpiling, uh, preparing for the Trump administration to take action against them. But now the question is, OK, how long is that going to last and how serious are the effects going to be? Right. And let's not forget Huawei, when it comes to the global supply chain uh, for certain tech companies, telecom and so on and so forth. I mean, Joel, this is a big player. Huge, huge. And and they're successful without the U.S., but what the Trump administration is really trying to do is is sever its ability to reach the U.S., which will be a big blow for sure. Like right. Huawei's seen massive growth here, but once you take the U.S. out, um, it, it definitely has has an impact. So what we're really seeing, we've talked about this before, is this this silicon curtain that's starting to envelop the world. And on one side you've got the U.S., and on the other t- side you have China, and. You know, what's interesting now is that it doesn't look like the Trump administration is necessarily going to stop with Huawei. Um, today we found out mm-hmm. that they're also targeting uh, potentially five different surveillance, Chinese-owned surveillance companies. So we can see how this could continue to roll out. And if it's been weaponized as part of the trade war, if that continues, like we could see this continue over weeks and months yet. What I kind of got from our conversation with um, the Cisco CEO, Chuck Robbins, is that also, you know, these life cycles of kind of tech trends, they last for several years, right? And so companies kind of do their buying, 
set up their relationships with other tech companies. Well, they set up their supply chains. Correct. And those are hard to remake on the fly, right? Right. And they're in place for several years, but like five to ten years. So it's very easy for a company to be left – if like Huawei is left out of the cycle, that has longer-term implications. What's interesting though, and we've, we've also written about this, is how – the, one of the reasons that Huawei has become such a player is that it's cheaper than other options. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I can't put it side by side with Cisco to tell you what it is. But our previous stories have, have suggested it's like twenty percent cheaper often and better quality than a lot of stuff. So you're a rural uh, telecoms company in the U.S. and you're trying to figure out how you're going to upgrade your network. Huawei looks like a pretty good offering. You know? Well, and that's one of the pushback I think too on when it comes to Huawei about whether they're getting some government subsidies to undercut. So Jillian, we're what does this mean, you know, in the political landscape? Because this is tough talk, uh, tough actions uh, by the White House. From what we understand, talking to CEOs, there is communication from the corporate community to Washington about this uh, measure. What are you hearing on that front? I mean, well, you saw Google reverse itself, you know, once the administration sort of gave everyone a 90-day pass to work out uh, the security implications of this ban, because obviously, you know, if you have these app, this software that created by companies like Google that are not able to get security patches and, and updates, that has, you know, implications uh, on a lot of levels. And so, you know, it really, it's disrupting a lot of business for American companies as well. All right. So, Joel, how do you tackle this going forward in the magazine? Well, just to stay on that Google yeah, thought for please. a second. I, I think it's actually a really significant thing that Google is now being brought into this. And I think that's one thing that we'll continue to try and, and develop some reporting around is because this is effectively a way that the administration can lean on a U.S. company like a Google to say, we need you to actually play a role in how we target Huawei, yeah. right? So this is yeah. using the power of Android to sort of get Huawei to bend that's to really its will, right? So It's pretty wild. Jillian, you're on that, right? Yeah, all over it. No, Coming it's soon. Julian's not getting year. any sleep. <laughs> no need to worry. There is no hurry. Cause I. my way back to Georgia. I love it. Paul Brennan coming through with a big song to introduce our next guest. He's down in Georgia and full disclosure, he's an old friend. Alan Tatel, general partner down at Noro Mosley Partners. I was telling you, Carol, before we uh, got into this segment, Alan, I think you and I have known each other for 20 years. Yes, Jason, we have. I, in fact, I know where all, all the bodies are buried. Hopefully, we'll have a good above-board conversation. <laughs> you and I, you and well, I have to have in. a drink. That's uh, well, You and I, and I want to hear these stories. I love it. Tatel right. coming in hot. Coming in hot. Uh, so congrats on the new fund. I mean, this is notable for a number of reasons. First, oversubscribed at $180 million, uh, hitting your hard cap. But I think more notable is this is Fund 8. Not a lot of fund eights out there uh, in this business. Tell us about the appetite for this and the pitch you made to investors. Yeah, it's um, we're really excited about this fund. Um, fund eight is pretty meaningful. You know, we successfully made the transition from the founding team of Nora Mosley to a new leadership team led by myself, Alan Mosley, and Mike Elliott in two thousand six. And we also we also uh, did a pivot in strategy, which led us to the success we have today. So, you know, it's not a linear one through eight. You know, needless to say, you have to 
kind of crossed that bridge of the founding team relinquishing their authority and bringing in new leadership that can take the the firm further, and we did that successfully, well, and we're enjoying it now. And Al, t- tell us about the the shift in strategy because I think that's really notable, especially because when you and I were sort of doing stuff together, you know, back in the day in the late '90s, early 2000s, you know, it was very much a, a regional fund. Keep me honest here, um, but you yep. really, you know, sort of started to look beyond the region, started to be a little more uh, vertical, uh, as it were, specialized across industry and investment type uh, rather than regional, right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean. The firm historically had a uh, very um, broad mandate in terms of what they invested in. You know, they did retail companies, biotech, you know, ran the gamut, technology companies as well, and but had a very strong and tight geographic focus. Well, um, in this day and age, you really have to be known for something as an investor um, beyond your geography. So when we took over the firm in 2006, we uh, adjusted it so that we focused on certain sectors, you know, B2B SaaS, software, healthcare IT, healthcare services, and we broadened our geography to be everywhere outside of the West Coast. You know, we felt like uh, we could bring our domain expertise to some really good secondary markets and kind of sell ourselves well, and that's what we've done. You know, I'm thinking Jason and I had a conversation with Cisco CEO uh, earlier today, talking, of course, a lot about U.S.-China trade and so on and so forth. But I do think about um, some of these big tech companies that are out there and how they are ripe for potentially doing acquisitions of maybe some of the smaller companies that you folks will ultimately invest in. I mean, because you're, you're focusing on information technology, do you think a lot about how these will be ultimately acquisitions by some of the bigger players? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Carol. Since 2013, we've had a number of exits. I think they total an aggregate $3.3 billion. And we've had a lot of success selling the strategics in the IT space. We've been able to sell companies to IBM and Microsoft, for example, Dell EMC also. So, yeah, we've, you know, when we actually invest, our investment thesis is not about being acquired by a private equity firm, that would always be nice, but it's about what strategic is going to acquire this company. And we've had some a good run at that, both on the healthcare side and the IT side. Well, can I just, I want to follow up on healthcare because that has been such a beaten down sector, right? Concerns about either replacing right. Medicare or, you know, uh, pr- prices on, you know, pressures on pr- uh, drug pricing and so on and so forth. Um, how do you see the healthcare space? What, where are the opportunities for you? Yeah, I mean, so we have about four or five areas that we've identified. And first of all, to, to help us with our healthcare investing, we have in our um, investor base a number of uh, blues plans and hospital systems that help us with deal flow as well as um, diligence of these companies, which has been super, you know, helpful when you're looking at stuff. Yeah. But for us, we've been looking at employer-focused solutions, quality measurement and reporting, operational administrative savings. We've been looking at stuff about how to make it more efficient, and not necessarily, and trying to stay away from, you know, government reimbursement, uh, private exchanges, some of the other things that, you know, have a lot of government risk associated with them. And Alan, when you were out on the road pitching this fund, uh, talk to us about the investor base. Did it change meaningfully? Were there different types of investors who showed an appetite for this asset class? Was it sort of the traditional names? What did you see that might have been different this go around? Yeah, we, we brought in a number of new institutions into this uh, into our fund aid. We brought in pension plans. We brought in sovereign wealth funds. Uh, we brought in some new endowments in universities. 
And a lot of it what resonated for them in terms of what we brought forward was, you know, we're we're not um, unicorn investors typically. We're sort of underwriting to a, you know, where we're investing when the company's at two to ten million in revenue. We mm-hmm. described that as early growth, and we're underwriting to like a two hundred million dollar exit to have success. And they kind of like that old school nature of what we do. You know, it's kind of like investing way back when. Right. And, you know, that's kind of good counter strategy to maybe the you know or complement to what the West Coast does. Investing like investors do. I like it. Old school. Alan Tatel, general partner, Nora Mosley Partners down in Atlanta. Nora Mosley raising its eighth fund, NMP8, closing at $180 million, uh, hitting its hard cap, exceeding its initial goal of $150 million. Always good to catch up. Always good to get the perspective of someone who's out there investing in the early stage companies, Carol, and in places, as you say, that we're talking a lot about IT, healthcare as well. Yeah. I just want to get his perspective on knowing you for 20 years. I can only imagine that there are some stories there. There are probably some stories. (laughs) I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Time for the drive to the close on this Wednesday. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly. We've got uh, Charlie, of course, breaking down those numbers. We're off our highs and lows of the session. Let's talk about the trade. Brad McMillan back, Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network. They have $156 billion in assets under management on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts. Uh, Brad, nice to be talking with you again. I don't know. What's uh, top of mind uh, when it comes to the investment environment? I think right now it's all about trade. You know, the real question is we've had no, we've had noise about tariffs. We've seen tariffs go up. We've got the Huawei blockade, or maybe we don't. You know, there's there's a 90 day extension. That's the thing that's really driving the markets right now. And so, what do you do about that as an investor? Because I feel like from the corporate perspective, what our reporting is showing us, our superstars in the newsroom are bringing this reporting to us. Then they're saying. CEOs are saying to their teams, listen, let's maybe hold off a little bit. Maybe we put that plan on ice because we just don't know exactly how this is going to go. Even if it's going to go high tariffs that we have to deal with, we want to know that before we start sort of modeling in the rest of the year. As an investor, what do you do? Well, I think that's exactly right. You know, we have to respond to the fundamentals. So companies are maybe stepping back a little bit, but they're delaying decisions because the truth of the matter is, even though the economy locally here in the U.S., it's slowing, but it's still growing. And when they delay a decision, they're not canceling. It's just saying we want some more clarity. So all of this could change if we actually get a deal done. And in fact, that's exactly where we've been. So in that sense, we're not in any place different than where we've been. Tariffs went up. Tariffs can go down again. Let's see if we get a deal. All right. We do want to mention a headline that just crossed uh, the Bloomberg terminal. This has to do uh, with Deutsche Bank and President Trump and a judge, a U.S. judge, rejecting the president's effort to quash Deutsche Bank, a subpoena uh, Deutsche Bank. This has to do uh, with access to his uh, 
financial records specifically, right. right? We've had lawyers for the president, House committees, and two banks uh, were appearing in a court today for arguments involving congressional subpoenas on his financial records, looking to access them. Uh, but again, the judge ruling from the bench on this subpoena. And so the judge saying... He's rejecting what the president and his team of lawyers want. Right, exactly. The president's lawyers had had asked for an injunction against those subpoenas, essentially saying, please, you know, get us off the hook here. Uh, and, of course, this is all a part of a series of ongoing investigations. The president, as we've heard uh, several times this afternoon from Bob Moon, uh, defiant to say the least, earlier in the Rose Garden, essentially canceling, walking out of a meeting meant to be about infrastructure with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, two congressional leaders on the Democratic side, to go out, address reporters. There were signs. There were all sorts Correct. of things that he was uh, putting forth. So this is all of a piece. Right. It's a lawsuit that the president has really laid out that he is a victim in this process. And we should point out that this lawsuit, uh, I believe, counts uh, the president's children, Ivanka, Eric, and Donald Jr., as well as several of his companies among the plaintiffs. So again, that judge, though, rejecting the president's effort to quash Deutsche Bank, uh, the subpoena uh, that has been uh, put forth to Deutsche Bank to access the president's financial records. All right. So let's get back to Brad McMillan. He's the chief investment officer over at Commonwealth Financial Network up in Waltham, Mass. So, Brad, just on that that note, how do politics play into what you're trying to do? Trade, you talked about being top of mind. Are you able to separate any signal from the noise when it comes into or when it comes to the sort of domestic politics here? As far as politics go, there is no signal. It's all noise. Yeah. And let me give you an example here. It wasn't that long ago we were having exactly the same conversation about the Mueller report. Remember that? I do. And at the end of the day, you know, nothing happened. Now, there may be something there. There may not. But at the same time, you look at it and you say, we're a long way. And I'm not going to worry about it until it looks like there's actually something there. All right. So in this environment, you know, like Dave Wilson was talking earlier in his chart of the day about uh, one researcher, specifically a portfolio manager, uh, looking at the difference in gaps between what we're seeing in small caps uh, versus the S&P 500, the gap between the 12-month performance specifically of the Russell 2000 and the S&P 500. And this particular portfolio manager saying, well, there's opportunities in investing in smaller caps at this point, uh, looking at kind of historical trends. Where are the opportunities in this market environment, in your view, Brad? I think they're still in U.S. stocks. And the reason I say that is because we're seeing European growth weaken. We're seeing Chinese growth weaken. We're seeing the U.S. weaken a bit, but we've also got a lot of headwinds here which could subside. Politics is a big one. Trade is another big one. In other words, We've got a lot of headwinds holding the market down right now, and if we get some upside surprises on earnings, which we certainly have this quarter and we're likely to next quarter as well, we can actually see much better performance than people think. But you say U.S. stocks. There's a lot of U.S. stocks out there. Are there certain, you know, certain areas? Healthcare is your worst performer this year, still up about 3.6%. Top of the list is information technology, which includes a lot of those big tech names that have really... Uh, provided momentum to the market, generally speaking. Uh, they're up 20%. Where do you want to be? I think you want to stay with growth. You know, investors have been chasing growth for a long time. They've been bidding up these companies because in a slower growth economic environment, that's one of the few ways to get the kind of growth that's going to drive stocks up. 
that equation has not changed. In fact, with growth slowing, secular growth in, um, you know, in earnings, which these companies which are providing new products, you know, they have a competitive moat, that's one of the only places to find it. So I think you stay with growth. I think tech is a great place to find that. I think if you look at disruptive companies in any area, you know, that's where you want to be. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.